Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the French Rugby Podcast with me, Tim Groves, former Franz Hooker, Benjamin Kayser, and an absolutely beaming former Scotland international, Johnny Beatty, who actually, Johnny, turned up an hour early for the podcast today. You were that excited, weren't you? So keen. So keen. No, but what a weekend, like, especially for me, my two passions. So Scottish rugby, absolutely flying. French rugby as well, smoking Italy. So look, my phone has been buzzing nonstop with people excited about the two teams, about predictions that we made last week coming true which a lot of people didn't think would happen and look it's just great for the tournament as well it's great to see France back where they are and it is always always good to see Scotland beating England so an amazing weekend of rugby and I absolutely loved it 100%. We will be talking all things France later on in the show but it does feel a little bit like the Scottish rugby podcast this week but Benji first of all how was your week? Hey, mine, mine was good. I was just um, a bit gutted, a bit livid to be to be stuck in England, not being able to to go and do some commentary. So I was meant to do the England France England Scotland game, sorry for French TV, but you know, had uh, at least it gave me time to 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 watch it. And honestly, every time you think Six Nations can change, private equity investments are going to come in, uh, promotion, relegation, uh, no crowds, whatever it is, there's something mythical and special about this tournament. Um, for a French TV, I was asked to do a, little, a tiny little video about like the the press, you know, the Saturday morning press. What's in England? There was absolutely nothing about France. It was you can't really explain it, right? It's just this. Well, it's the what, it's the the second, the world's second um, uh, oldest uh, trophy, sporting trophy, I think, in history. There's like the what's it called that that sailing. Um, America's Cup. America's Cup, exactly. That's oldest, but apart from that, it isn't. I have a feeling, and you tell me, Johnny, <laughs> I have a feeling that the rivalry between England and Scotland is a little bit more than just before halftime and after let's have beers. It's a little bit more, I, I resisted to literally not eat you alive. There's this thing about the Scots are absolutely desperate about eating in England. And that was a proper display of heart, soul, passion. So I was actually, I was chuffed, at, honestly. I was chuffed at, to see, to see, a big set of balls and a huge heart winning a game more than anything. Before we get into the game, sitting on the couch and watching, I was the exact same. So I, I was meant to be doing commentary as well. It got cancelled. I'm sat watching it on the couch with a beer. Did it make you miss playing or were you happy to be watching? Because that's the first time that I've watched, probably the first time that I've watched Scotland and been genuinely 100% delighted. 
before I've always felt that I could have been playing or could have been involved or I still was fit enough. But that was just 100%. It was a pleasure for me to sit in front of the TV and watch that game unfold. And the manner in which it unfolded, I absolutely loved it. But for you watching games this weekend, was there any kind of still want to be there, still want to play? Or were you absolutely loving just watching and absorbing the games? No, honestly, honestly, I was chuffed to see those games. I was chuffed to see to see France finally deliver in a in a consistent way. I was I was chuffed to see a big old game still against Wales and Ireland. Not not the best game of the weekend, but still. No. Um, but no, I, I was just. It's it's one of those things that the, the, the weeks are particularly repetitive, right? The days are pretty repetitive. I don't know what, yeah. what a Sunday is. Is it a time where you don't have to wake up and you know and take your kids to school? What school? I don't even know what that is anymore. <laughs> so so basically, it's it's um it's it's hugely repetitive. But bloody hell, this international rugby is just it's it's got something special. And so whenever people think this rugby is going the wrong way and it's getting a little bit boring and this and that, then then you make me it makes me feel a lot better really, to see those things. So I didn't think about myself to be honest. I more thought about the general state of rugby. Because to be honest, Auto Nations Cup was a bit soulless. I didn't know what it meant. Just look at the reaction of the England players when they win it. They went, way, and then left. But look at the reaction of the Scots when they won. There was no way. They were absolutely chuffed. Uh, and on a side note, I thought it was absolute class from uh, from Hogg to let the, the fellas lift the trophy. I think it sums up, you know, the perfect sort of day. That's how sport needs to be done. And don't get me started about England, but I will in a bit. Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, let's get our guest on now. He can join in the conversation. He'll have plenty to to add to this. And well, Johnny's been in charge this week, hasn't he? He's, um, he's brought another Scott along. Let's get him on now to chat about Scotland's win over England. It's Scotland's most capped back rower. Jason White joins us. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good to see you guys. We are here to talk about France and other things, all things Six Nations, but it's been a long, long wait. We were just discussing it for Scotland to beat England at Twickenham. So, where were you for the big moment? Yeah, I was. I was at home watching it with my. Uh, well, we just mentioned there. I'm proud father to uh, to four young girls, and I managed to have everybody else in the set room in the house, and I managed to sit down with my dog. <laughs> so I had Dilly played me on the uh, on a big sort of beanbag, a couple of beers, and. Uh, what a great afternoon of sport it was for a Scotsman Saturday. Absolutely idyllic. I know you're a proud Scot, obviously former captain. You know Gregor very well, the coach. What did you make of the Scottish performance? Yeah, I think whenever my experience went to Twickenham at all, and, and any game of rugby, you've got to match whatever's coming at you in the forward pack. And I think you would, you can pretty much, everyone would recognise that the Scottish eights got the better of the English eights, which allowed the Scottish backs to, to do their stuff and come through. And, and my experience in the and, and to be honest, probably the hiding that I took now, and that's because we, we just couldn't front up in, in the forward pack. And I think that was the, that was the key thing for me in the weekend. Are you talk, you're talking about the um, about the, the performance of the eight and stuff, but listen, you you were you were a bone crusher of your own, okay? So you you put a lot of importance into chopping people in half, and uh, I, I basically you know that if you're going to go and challenge, you're talking about the front eight. Yes, the collective effort, but there's also back row that I think are are very very impressive for, for a Scottish. I love this little Tasmanian devil that is you know Amish Watson. <laughs> She's so entertaining. He's got this big smile on his face and he just goes from task to task non-stop and he just gives his absolute best and his heart in his thing. And the symbolic is that he ripped the last ball, right? And then and then kicked it out. And I was just for him. And I'm sure that's something that's important to you. But I was absolutely delighted to see, you know, like you want to finish a perfect day needs to be finished with class, right? 
And like you, you mentioned, you were on your own with your dog, a couple of beers. You probably, you know, the sun was setting or something in your beautiful home or something. It must have been something amazing. But then you see Hog basically asking the two young fellas to lift a trophy for him. I think that's, that was that final little touch that I think, see, that's the differentiator between class because also Nations Cup, I was in Twickenham when they should have lost to France, the C team of France, who played with all their heart and passion and stuff. A.D. Jones comes out after the game. He's looking at the cameras and stuff, and he's like, no, nah, mate, the only reason why it took us a little bit more uh, time to win than normally, not that we should have lost or something, the only way, the reason why it took us a little bit more time to win is because we were 2% off our performance. And I can't accept that this is a B team. We've collected a lot of data on them. But they're actually better than the starters. So I'm like, what a bloody tool. This guy has got zero class about him. Whereas, which is my question to you, did you like what Hogg did, which was at the end, he didn't finish just on a flat note. He finished on an absolute high of letting those young fellas um, lift him. Absolutely outstanding. Probably didn't sink into me right at the time because I was fortunate that I'd lifted the cup as, as captain back in back in 06. But for him to give it to the two first caps, like what a great feeling of, of being the guy for the team to do that. And, and Hoggy's had, like his journey's not been straightforward as as the captain he's had a couple of tough times himself and his captain from fullback I don't, I don't think is is the natural position for so the way that he handles himself in the press i think he's been he's been outstanding and it's not normal like the, the natural scottish persona and and probably psychology is to really harden themselves and i think we've seen the boggy coming through with, with ben russell we've got guys who are they believe in themselves and i think there's there's lots of different layers to why they're believing in themselves but, but they're spreading it through and we've got young guys who are now coming through Cam Redpath for his first cap, and, and like how amazing is that for him to for his first cap to beat England? It's, it's like amazing. We've got Finn who's doing so well in France, and he is just not your typical Scotsman. He can make a thousand mistakes, and he'll still laugh about it, and then try it again to make another thousand. That's for sure. He's good enough. That's the thing. A press also said, "Look, Finn maybe didn't have his best game, but he's ultimately your one wonder kid. He's probably him and Hoggy are the two guys you look to. But ultimately in that game, you, you mentioned Cam Redpath, Hamish Watson, Jamie Ritchie." Xander Fagerson, Matt Fagerson, who's getting his first run in a while, like from one to 23, they were outstanding. So it didn't need to be that Finn had to stand up and be the one man to, to lead everything and, and charge everything and be a magician. The game plan and the execution and the desire and the coherence with that team compared to England on the other side of the field was on another level. So you didn't need these boys to be head and shoulders above the rest. There's also another another guy, Johnny, I don't know what you think about. I'm sure you think he's obviously good and stuff, but I think Johnny Gray is is reaching serious, serious highs. There's obviously Ryan and Toji. Remember last year, all they spoke about was like, who is going to be, who's going to start for the Lions? Is it going to be them two together? And Toji might actually be captain of the Lions. I thought, yeah, fair enough. Obviously, the two of them are absolute machines and they're really dynamic and very modern the second rows who cover a lot of ground and workhorses but i thought bloody hell johnny gray only won everything that there was to win last year and i think he the only his only problem is that he doesn't look like his brother so he's not as big but bloody hell does he shift a lot of work on the pitch and i think the difference we've got for johnny is he's left he's broadened his horizons by leaving glasgow and he's come down to exeter and he's just he's played with johnny hill week in week out and he's gone up against the top English second rows and all the foreigners who come in, and he's realised. I got them. I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I, can, I can draft for 80 minutes. I can do it all. And he's he's not a fancy second row who, like maybe some of the guys in world rugby you could pick out might make a 
20 meter break where they, they might do some stuff but he's the type of sycamore you want in your pack he's gonna gonna push hard in the scrum and, he, and he's gonna smash rocks all day you mentioned cam repath and obviously dave cherry as well first cap winning the calcutta cup obviously that was at twickenham but you know what that feels like you won the calcutta cup on your debut didn't you i said yes yeah. so that was like uh, golly gosh how long ago was that so back in 2000 i came in for my first cap england where they were coming up to Murrayfield to try and win the Six Nations in Scotland. We were looking to win the wooden spoon. Is that that game with uh, John Jeffries? Oh, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I play with you, Jace. I'm only messing. I know how old oh. you are. I play with you, mate. Come on. So, yeah. So, you know what? That was like dream stuff for me. Is to, and I've got memories of that day. It was, it was a beautiful Scottish day where the rain was horizontal and run out of the, the tunnel at Murrayfield, the Highland Cathedral. And what I remember was, I've never been there, but I remember like the Super Bowl, there's like ticker tape coming down off the, the top of the West Stand at Murrayfield and just running out to the bagpipes and just thinking, right, this is just what everything I've done for my whole life so far at, at 21 at that point. And the game scooshed by and to beat England for the very first time and then to go out into the, the night in Edinburgh having beaten England was, yeah, that was, that was pretty special. And did Andy Nicholl give you the trophy as well, or did you did you take it on the night out, or what happened? I got quite lucky because it was the the tradition in the Scottish team for your first cap. Everybody would buy you a drink, so they'd come up and they would have a water and they give you a vodka. They would have a ginger beer and you've got a whiskey. But everyone was just they were they were just so happy that I managed to sidestep the initiation and just managed to have a have a fun night without without going too far, as I think quite often can happen in, in your first game. And Johnny, we mentioned your uh, your dad last week. Obviously, he was um, part of the side, the last side, Scottish side, yep. to, to win it to Wickenham. So have you, have you spoke to him? Is he a bit gutted that he can't call himself the last Scottish player to, to no, win it to Wickenham? No, at all. They're absolutely delighted. So that, that whole generation, they've all been WhatsApping each other back and forth. Um, just saying, you know, they're glad, genuinely glad that the monkey's off the back. I think everyone recognises the importance of going down against old enemy and, and beating England at Twickenham. Look, it hadn't been done since 83, but they're delighted. The same as every Scottish player, every Scottish fan. Um, it's a huge step and a big marker to lay down uh, and a monkey off the back. So no, they're all delighted. Absolutely delighted for the team. Couldn't stop talking about Hoggy and the gesture at the end. A mark of the man and how far he's come as a leader as well. Um, they're, they're over the moon, as is everybody, I think, within Scottish rugby. Before we move on from Scotland, because we should talk about other things as well, Johnny. Some other stuff has happened this weekend apart from Scotland beating England. Jason, you were you were captain, weren't you, when Johnny made his international debut? Um, the big one, I think it was. Romania, was it Johnny? Big match in Romania. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your memories of a, of a young, fresh-faced Johnny Beattie? You know, a lot of excitement about Johnny because Johnny was, he probably had a skill set of a back and he was able to play in the forwards. And unfortunately, I got injured in the, in the game against uh, yeah. against Romania. So I ended up in a dodgy scrum, I think. And, and the scrum field round that I ended up over, overcompensating to defend against the scrum half, thinking he was going to be faster than he was and he wasn't. He stepped back inside and I caught my knee and ended up popping Macy out. But yeah, and you scored a try in that, that game as well, Johnny, didn't you? And Yeah. In front of eleven and a half thousand spectators at Murrayfield. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Weirdly, Jace, one of the things that stands out most was actually that injury. It's the first time I'd ever seen somebody do an ACL. And it's one of those things that you never ever see. And I'd looked up to you for so long. I remember I used to come watch Glasgow on a Friday night as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. And I remember seeing you walking down Byers Road uh, in Glasgow in a sort of Glasgow Warriors tracksuit and you seeing this man mountain. Like for me, it was like the mountain from Game of Thrones walking down Byers Road. That's what it was like <laughs> seeing Jace at that time and then 
I can remember from the, the, the day before the game, you slipped a little handwritten note underneath my door, just, you know, wishing me all the best, start of a career. And like, I was on cloud nine. I think I was 20 at the time. Didn't know what was happening, but playing with essentially all of my heroes, people that I'd watched playing rugby for Scotland for years. And that for me was one of the biggest things that stood out with that. What game was watching your injury, which is really, really strange, but it sort of almost brought the sport or the stupidness of the sport that something like that could happen to somebody so strong without being touched purely from changing direction. It's the weirdest thing that it stuck with me, but seeing you and then trying to defend with you and then seeing you drop and just seeing one of the strongest people I'd ever seen in my life have a knee click like that, I'll never, ever forget it. And yeah, I 100% remember the, in, the initiation after game, you hadn't forgotten about me. I don't think I've been as drunk since after that game. I certainly got a drink with every single member of the squad. Um, <laughs> but looking at an, an amazing memory and wonderful to do with such a good, a good group of people. Man, I, think, I think you're a little bit starstruck, Johnny, but to be honest, Still I've, seen, I've, I've seen Jace do some pull-ups with 70 kgs of chains on him, but he couldn't squat for his life. So it's not, it's not, it's it's not so surprising. It's not so surprising if the one thing he's going to break is a knee. I'm telling you, those shoulders are not going anywhere. But those knees, those knees were definitely going to buckle at some point. And obviously, you're you are a Scottish legend, Jason. But you're a little bit French as well. You you finished your career in Clermont, and um, we mentioned your kids before. A couple of them are French, aren't they? Yeah, two of them. So Annabelle was um, through my travel. So before I joined Clermont, I played in. uh, I was in sale for six years. So. We had a good, um, good grounding with, with a lot of French players. Our coach was Mick Anton Drake, who was an interesting chap. <laughs> so we had, we had some really uh, interesting French guys come over. So they were, they were brilliant for us. And Philippe was, uh, was, was really good. And in my last year, when I was trying to work out what I was going to do, we ended up, we had Clermont in the, would have been the Heineken Cup. And we actually went over and we beat Clermont at, uh, at, at Stade Master Michelin in, so what would that have been, 2007, 8? And Philippe could, who he was totally pumped for the game because he'd, I think it must have been nine or ten years he'd played in Clermont. He was like, he was captain of Clermont. Yeah, he was a bit of a legend yeah. there. But I don't know if his relationship was soured or he had a massive chip on his shoulder when he went over with, uh, with Sale. He was so desperate to win. Did Fleet coach you with, with France then? Yeah. Yeah, so Fleet was brilliant. Like, he was brilliant. So we'd have, like, he, he couldn't remember people's names. So we had, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had we had the two lobbies. So we had we had Nacho the the second row, um, Ignacio. Yeah, Fernandez Lobe, but the older brother, yeah. the older brother, and we had Plan. Yeah, he, and he would just he would call um, Plan brother of Nacho. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even know his name. Like the guys, like Plan was just a legend. He couldn't he couldn't hear his right name. And then the fitness guy, we had a guy called Mick Johnston, who was our head fitness. Uh, S&C coach and had a guy called Scott and he would call him brother of Nick so, so he, this guy had worked with us for five years and didn't know his name do you remember tell me, tell me if he did that with you guys Jace but in the French team so in, in England obviously if you put two fingers to somebody it's pretty it's pretty harsh right or in France if you put the middle finger it's the equivalent and for some people you know when they talk they, ha- they use their fingers well Philippe for some whatever reason had his thir- third finger up all the time it was just a it was a habit of his or something. So he would throw the finger to everyone when he was speaking, you know, so you couldn't actually concentrate on what he was saying. You would just giggle and laugh. And so imagine if you, if you add this to, oh, what brother of Juan, you know, come around here, you'll play number six or something. It's just, it's hard to concentrate, right? He, he, Philippe, back in the day, before video analysis really came in, he had a big, 
in Carrington where we trained at Sale, we had a, we had a big TV up on the screen, but it was just done on video recorder with a really big old school remote control. And he would be, he'd be smashing the, the controller against the TV. What is this? What is this? Brother of Nacho. And so, so, so I had a bit of an idea before I came out to Claremont about what it, what it was going to be like through playing with, playing with the Frenchies. And I think at the same time, so Lionel came back to Claremont with me and he'd already, he'd played in Claremont before, I think. Yeah, he started there from the academy almost. Yeah, so he, so he came through. Yeah, so, so yeah, Tim, um, out, of, out of the kids, so Annabelle was born in, in Stockport and then Betty was born in um, Up the Hill. The, what's the name of that hotel? Up, up the Hill. Chateaugnure. Chateaugnure. And then our, our third daughter, May, was the first, the first water baby born in, in Claremont just opposite the stadium. Yeah, we had a great time, and and Ben and I ended up being just about neighbours. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed my, my time in France. It was, it was brilliant. No, mate, you 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 seriously uh, left a good impression. So Jace, you, as as you can, as you guys can see, is pretty pretty chilled and humble and stuff. But he, we, we all in this show, Jace, we always mention like like who made it in France and why. You know, so there's always the example of Nick Benedon who bought into the culture, uh, got there, started speaking, was very much into, you know, buying into the new thing and stuff. And there's loads of different examples where guys were reluctant to change, reluctant to open themselves, reluctant to just learn about different cultures, different ways of doing things and stuff. And Jace has always been a very respectful dude and stuff. And so he just stuck to what he knows, you know, I'm just going to concentrate on being respectful, doing my stuff well committing hard and going, going hard. But I'll, I'll tell you, Jason, you know this story because you always tell this story whenever I'm with you on a speaking gig or something. But the day that you earned the most respect out of the boys is when you broke your, you broke your tibia. You didn't even scream. So the guy basically got sidestepped by, by West Fofana, I think, or somebody fell on it. No, so I was carrying, I was carrying the ball. So it was um, ah, okay. 1st of January, 2010. And it started off, it should have been a game of, well, should have been touched, but. Vern was our coach, so you can imagine that ah. touch didn't last very long. So <laughs> it's touch, but you know, if you lose, you won't play. It's touch mash. Yeah, yeah. touch. Yeah, slash 110. So I took the ball. I got a, a pass off Brock and got tackled by Wesley and Alexandra Odebert, the the back who came up top and ended up a little bit somehow did Macy. Just the thing you've done a thousand times. Ended up getting swiveled round and my studs must have stuck and. Unfortunately, I had a, yeah, a spiral fracture in my tib and I broke my tib as well. And I just remember going down on, on all fours and a couple of guys come up and was like, oh, no, it's, it's knackered. And Vern, and Vern comes up and he's like, go on, all right, Jace, get up, come on. I was like, no, Vern, I, I'm pretty sure I've broken my leg, Vern. He's like, get up, right. And, he, and, he, and he's told this story back. He looked down at my, at my sock and he could see the two bones were, or the bone of my, my tibia, which was a bit displaced, was like pushing through my sock. And he's like, yeah, mate, you've, you've broken your leg, but just get off, get off to the side and, and we can finish training. So, <laughs> no, mate, hang on. You got to add the sound to the story because basically he broke his freaking tibia. So like you said, it's pushing on the sock and the guy just went, patouche, patouche, sekase. I would have been rolling over, screaming. I mean, they could hear me from, you know, all the way to London or something. He didn't even scream. And all the boys like, bloody hell, he's a tough nut, this one. Because he just, you know, basically broke his his his, his bones in the spiral way, and didn't even make a noise. I remember my first uh, my first lunch when I went over Benji, which was that thing about right. I'm going to integrate. I'm going to do my best here. I'm out for lunch, and there was right with the forwards. So there was probably Mario Ledesma, uh, Martin Scales, or Thibaut Lino, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll come along for lunch. 
and the boy spoke so quick. I didn't understand or say one word for the hour that we had lunch. And I was just like, this is, I'm going to have to concentrate. And, and slowly by slowly, you learn one or two, three, four words in the sentence and you can then put it together. And then I think being, being respectful, I think, was, was a big thing. I, I guess the way I was, I was brought up and, and the bits that Benji, you'll know, and Johnny is, is part of your lives is just like shaking hands every morning. <laughs> it's a pain in the bum sometimes, but it's a great way of acknowledging people like back in, in Scotland. You're lucky if you get a flick of the head or something. People just don't do it. And I think like those little things, I know Vern tried to do it with the Scotland squad when he came back in and those little bits and pieces of, yeah, but mate, instead instead of complaining about it, you just understood that that was part of the environment. You know, that's 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 your attitude, and that's the reason why it's another example of Nick abandoning on somebody who speaks a lot, who did really well by being uh, expressive. Jason is not the most expressive guy, but he he also took it the right way. It was all about respect, hard work, respect, hard work, and then that got you that status of basically being your passage at at Clermont was was an absolute success. And we've spoken about Vern quite quite a bit on here before with with previous guests. He, he obviously is a guy who who divides opinion, but clearly it seems like you fitted quite well into his culture and what what he wanted. Apart from a complete lack of sympathy when you when you break your leg, did you get on well with him? You were you had a good relationship with Vern. Yeah, he was a he was a man of few words, Vern, and he would like he tried to. I remember once he tried to probably prod me like psychologically about saying my turnovers weren't quite as good as other backdoors. But Vern, I think, quickly realized after that, that I was the type of guy that he didn't need to prod me or because I was experienced enough when I came to him. Um, he, he was good, you know, like Vern was, he, he was for me, he was the, he was the modern day Jim Telfer and he liked his, like I've got some great memories of, it was one of the, probably one of the international breaks. I don't know if you were there, Benji, but going for like a, a massive hike in the snow with snow boots on, walking for like four hours up to this like old berge in the middle of what felt like the middle of nowhere, had eaten this massive coat that were supping on a couple of bottles of red wine and then coming back down and into the bus and stuff. And and it doesn't fit for everybody, but you know, I I really enjoyed my time in the burn and, and he liked he liked the camps. I remember in my very the very last season where I was coming back from the you know broken my leg and my hamstring was a little bit dodgy. Went away in this this preseason camp and this was really me. I had to prove myself that I was going to be okay. Really hot in the summer, this French pre-season. We canoed down the thing. We did a load of climbing. We had some lunch. Then the afternoon's activity was, I think it was a 30K. Running bike. Return, return to base camp. And you were putting threes. And you're crossing your fingers. that you've got. I somebody, was with you. You've got I was somebody with you, really, mate. That's what I was going to say. You cross your fingers. You've got somebody really fit. I got Benjamin. Well, yeah. you got Benji. <laughs> and then, then, you got, then you got me. Like, oh, no, no, but hang on. Wait for the rest of the story. So there's, you've got threes. And I, if I remember rightly, Ben, so it was two of you running at once and one of you cycling. And you started off at the bottom of this hill. Oh, my word. That's such a funny story. I'm glad that you're bringing it up. Nice. No, two, two bikes, three guys. So one runs, two's on the bike, and they just swap whenever you want. But all three of you need to get finished a 30K. So we go up the top of this hill, and our third person... Noah Nakatasi, after 400 meters, falls off his bike into the ditch, then comes up. We're trying to get running, and he then turns out he didn't learn how to ride a bike back in Fiji. No, then, mate. Hang of course on. he didn't. So, Jace, Jace wants to lead by example. He's like, yeah, I'm going to start running. And it's up a hill like this. You know, it's a long one. And I'm there cycling next to him. And then I hear, bah! Noah just falls over. He's like, what are you doing? Noah? No, don't worry, don't worry. I'll catch up. I'll catch up. All right, fine. So, me and Jace keep on going. You know, we start for the, like, for the first couple of hundred meters. And then 
We're like, where is Noah? Where is Noah? Because obviously if I swap with him and me and Jace are swapping, 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 and then we can't do anything. And then there's the guy who comes out. So by the way, you know Noah and Nakata like, yeah, yeah, that's our teammate. Yeah, he, he doesn't know how to ride a bike. He fell, he fell in the <laughs> ditch over there and he quit. <laughs> he quit after 200 meters. So I blow it. So all right, fine. So we've got another 25 or 27K to do just between me and Jace with one bike. And then we keep on going. And then I don't know if you remember, Jace, but you and I got split up because you went to save somebody. You went to save Swanpool or whatever, whoever it was. Ryan Swanpool. Yeah, yeah Ryan Swanpool, a Sharks uh, number 10, 12, who came as medical joker to Clermont. And he had like a cramp or something. And he was on his back, started cramping and fell in the ditch also. But he, he could have really hurt himself, to be honest, because <laughs> it was quite steep. And Jace was with the bike and stops. Oh, I'm going to help him, whatever. I never found Jace again. I had 15K to do on my own. I'm telling you, that was that was a long, long, long... I can't say it goes a run because I would be lying. It was a long power walk. You were following signs on the... They put arrows on the ground and I ended up missing one. And I, again, I think I was the last person into camp. And there's there's Vern waiting as I came in. Oh, where have you been, old man? I was like, oh... <laughs> we should we should have a show just on Fijians because five or six years later I did the same exercise with Clermont and Pisili Yato chucked his trainers off. So ah, I can't run with trainers, they hurt my feet. So he wanted to do 30 Ks of running and cycling barefooted. And I mate, that's not gonna work. He ended up splitting his feet open. Like to the point he needed stitches on his feet and obviously he didn't fit in the run bike. I think he 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 he's like, I'd rather have stitches on my feet. Then have to do Doesn't thirty days of, of cycling, <laughs> running. So you found the the easy escape. And speaking of uh, speaking of coaches, obviously bringing it back to the current Six Nations, you'll have you'll have played against Fabian Galtier. So have you got any kind of merry memories of um, playing against him? And what do you make of the job he's doing at the moment with France? I, rem- I remember. I think Fabian was number nine when we played France in the quarterfinal of the World Cup in Australia in two thousand and two, where we lost pretty heavily. I think that was probably forty odd points to ten. Um, yeah, he was good. You know, you know, he's he was clearly a good tactician. He's doing a great job with France, and you know, I, I I listen to you guys' podcasts and all the sort of analysis of Van Oven. He doesn't sound like a fantastic man manager um, of a, of a club team, but I'll tell you what, he's got a good group of coaches and he's got a really good crop of players in that French team at the moment, and they look they're the form team at the at the minute and building towards the World Cup. Have they? They can keep everybody fit, but they're going to cause problems. I don't want to jump the gun, Jace, but obviously last time Scotland won a tournament of this nature was 1999, and the deciding game was in Paris. This year, Scotland have got France in Paris, I think in the third round. Um, yeah. How do you see that going? I think momentum. I think momentum is, is absolutely key in the Six Nations. I think for so many years, Scotland have always lost the first game, and it's always been a little bit chase up. That second game then becomes really pressurised. If it goes in the scenario that we beat Wales this Saturday, which if we perform well enough, we're definitely good enough, then by all means, we're good enough to take on, on France. I mean, everybody was saying that game four, round four was going to be England and France, the decider. So now clearly the big upset of Scotland has changed this. To be honest, it's, it's easy to say this because you go weekend after weekend, okay. But obviously this weekend, just like you said, is a big decider. I think Scotland has to beat Wales, considering that the only reason that Wales beat Ireland without being disrespectful at all, because you could see Ireland coming back and stuff. and that They were just out conditions basically towards the end of the game because they were 14 men down for, for 16 minutes. It was just too long. 
And and I really do think it's just like you said, if everybody's fit with Scotland, that's the only, that's my only issue with Scotland. You drop you drop Amish Watson, you can't replace him. You drop Johnny Gray, you can't replace him. Obviously, Hogg, you, you can't replace him. Finn Russell, don't, don't even get me started. So that's my only, only issue with, with Scotland, what scares me. They need to have everything going together. That's what you're saying, Jace. You need momentum. So you need to win Wales, but without, uh, without um, not, not so much using too much sort of battery because you have a week to, to recover. But please do not injure or suspend anyone because otherwise you'll be in big trouble. But definitely round three, poof, that France-Scotland game is going to be worth... Worth, worth and, we, and we've we've benefited from lack of pros, and, and I think we 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 broke that voodoo down in Wales. Whether it's psychological, well, it is psychological to go down to Twickenham and not have eighty thousand people there, where seventy eight thousand are going against you. There's a little bit less pressure there, and I think whether that is as relevant in Paris, but it's now given the Scotland team the confidence just to kick on, and they will now believe that we we can go to Paris. And the fact that we've got Finn in France doing so well. We've, we've got the boys playing in different leagues with confidence that if we get parity in the forwards or we can get some dominance in the forwards, then it's probably what's game one. So if you have to put your mortgage on it, then Jason, who's winning this tournament? Is it Scotland? Is it France? Or is it someone else? Yeah, Scotland's, we're, we're in it now. I, I think we, we're definitely in the hunt, but it's game by game. And you know what? I'm the eternal optimistic Scotsman. For the last however many years like this could be our year. This could be it. <laughs> so I'm not going to change it. It's going to be our year. Well, fingers crossed. And thanks ever so much for joining us, Jason. Great to get your insight on um, on Clermont, on France, on Scotland, on everything in between. And um, good luck to all the Scots for the rest of the tournament. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Cheers, Jason. Cheers, Jason. Legend. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Obviously, I'm completely biased because he's my mate. But I am a huge fan of Jason White. I think he's absolute class. I think he's uh, an absolute stand-up guy. I, you hang out an hour with him, you feel wiser. You feel like you're a better person. <laughs> Honestly, that's, that's really the way that he makes me feel. So he touched it. He's got four girls and he's got, he's got a fantastic family, four little girls who are, who are absolutely brilliant. And like, you know, it's just like happiness about life. And I think he's got, he's got his priorities well, well sorted incredibly humble like you got you have to reach out down his throat to get it out huh? but he chopped people in half for a living he was by a mile for some a couple of seasons like johnny sort of hinted to it the best scottish player because bloody hell he was respected no disrespect but to, to the scots but he was the only one who could stand up to the Safas. He, he was the only one who had the physicality to stand up to anyone anytime that's why he could have tra- he, could, he could travel and at the end in clermont he had the humility to basically finish in the second row bloody hell he did a good job but no, no, he's incredible CV, incredible career, great bloke. I think people forget how much of a monster he was. Yeah, He's one of the few Scottish people, especially like before the crop of Johnny Grays and Finns and Hoggies going abroad. He's one of the few Scots of that era that actually cracked it, but properly cracked it abroad. He was one of the few Scots boys that was physically able to dominate. See, when he spoke about shit, he didn't even mention that they've won the premiership. 
and he was player he was probably of the year. one of the best players of the Premiership. He, he was player of the year. He won player of the season in the Premiership. Did he win it? Yeah, mate. See, so that's what I'm talking about. Humility. But he wouldn't he bring that. Doesn't up. even. Yeah, I would, mate. I would have yeah. it behind me on my wall. I would have it there. <laughs> like, what did you see it? Did, did you not see it? Um, but he, but that's it. He genuinely was one of the few guys that broke the mold and did it properly for me. Like I absolute hero worship. Like I used to w- walk along, I could walk from my house to Glasgow's ground as a kid. And he was one of the few, he was head and shoulders above the rest, just physically dominated everything. And a lovely bloke for me, he was my captain for Scotland caps, but with his injury, again, you touched on his broken tibia. He also popped that ACL. So I heard it pop next to me. He was a meter from me. He just limped off the pitch. Didn't even wince. <laughs> just right, tell walked. us more. Johnny, tell me more, please, about that note. I, I think that's very, very touching, you know? It was, and also non, non-expected. So the the night, we all had obviously our last dinner before, it was Scotland-Romania was my first cap. Um, and we had the last dinner, a, a meeting before bed. Everyone goes back to their bed. And it must have been about half past 10. So he must have written something in his room and then on his way back to... On his on, on to retire for the night, he sort of slipped a note under my bed, and I, I just sort of heard the and paper sliding under, and turned it over, and it was a handwritten note from Jace. And there's weird things in rugby that you remember crowds, you remember teammates, and there's certain memories of receiving gifts that are unexpected or something like that, motivations or just things that aren't expected at all. But that was a handwritten note from my captain, Jason White, a guy that I looked up to for the past five, six, seven years, idolized him when he played for Glasgow and Scotland. And he was just, you know, very simple. Again, you touched how he makes you feel as a bloke. Everything with Jason is really simple, straightforward, calm. And it was the exact same type of message in that note. It was just, look, delighted to have you with us. Uh, Very excited you're part of the team. Um, Enjoy tomorrow. Enjoy the day. It's a big day for you and your family and have fun. Something really simple like that. But just, you know, to get a handwritten note the night before your first cap from a captain and a guy that you loved so much was really, really cool. Almost a regret not to have spent more time with him because he was my captain. He was out then with that ACL injury. He then went abroad, obviously, um, and I think finished with Scotland, but didn't really get to be teammates for very long. It was quite flitting, um, but an absolute legend. Pleasure to be around and one of rugby's real good guys. Um, And like you said, one of the few Scots that's actually genuinely cracked it in every league, at every level. Hey, that's, that's, that's an absolutely lovely story. Did I ever tell you my first professional, or one of my first professional games? No. I think it wasn't the first. I think it was like the second or whatever. And I, I was rooming with Augustin Pichot, who was a real mentor of mine, a lovely, lovely bloke. I really got along well with him. I would have, you know, jumped through, whatever, jumped off of a roof for him. And we're there and he's the captain of Pumas and he's got seven phones that are constantly ringing and he's a businessman and he's on this and yelling at somebody in English and speaking Spanish and speaking Italian, Portuguese, whatever. And I'm there, you know, just like waiting. Obviously, I'm not going to, you know, for every single rugby player or professional sportsman who's shared a room, you know that if the youngster, you're not touching the lights, right? The lights will stay on as long as the old fellow will decide that they're on. So I'm there and I'm ready to sleep. Well, obviously, I was shitting myself before that game, but... I was sort of hanging like this. And at one point, he just turns around. You know, bunk beds are sort of next to each other. And the light is in the middle. He turns around, and I'm there already tucked up, whatever, waiting. He's like, Benji, so, yeah, are you scared? I was like, yeah, thanks for asking, Gus, because, yeah, a little bit. Well, good, because you're shit. And, bah, and he switched the lights off. <laughs> and I'm there in my bed. I think you can hear my, my, my teeth basically whacking against each other. And actually, to be honest, the next day he woke up, he was pissing himself. Oh, mate. <laughs> he went to breakfast before me or after me. I can't remember. Then he gave me a big hug. You know, he was only joking. But to be honest, once I've laughed it out, 
all my all my anxiety uh, before the game uh, le- sort of left me. You know what I mean? So he was actually he played a trick on me to try to help me. But I always remember this story that you scared me good because you're shit. <laughs> and you switch it off. <gasps> Oh, the shock, oh, mate. The shock. Brilliant. Um, great to have Jason on. And uh, clearly, uh, you both made a good impression on him as well. I mean, uh, can we get someone on who's got a bit of dirt on you? Because Benji, you were the best neighbour since sliced bread. And Johnny, some sort of forward-back hybrid. So high praise indeed. You can try, mate. You can try. You won't <laughs> find one. All right? <laughs> when you're good, you're good, what do you want me to say? When you're a it's nice fellow, you're a nice fellow. Amen. And we we spoke a bit about France there. We spoke a lot about Scotland. Um, but we should talk in more detail about France's win at the weekend. It was a bit of a hammering, but Italy, fewest caps of any team in the tournament since 1992. And it did look like men against boys, didn't it? Yeah. And I think also um, to, we had the conversation, should there be relegation? Should there not be? Like, I think Benji, you keep saying, look, there's going to be a change in the landscape. Something's going to give. Um, interestingly, Sam Warburton's comments, I'm not sure if you saw yeah, those past couple say. of days. I mean, he's right. Like, I know Italy at the start of a rebuild, but you know, when Italy had Parise, Massi, uh, Castro, like when they offered a decent squad, right now they're not offering anything at all. Um, and they're really, really battling. It looked like it could have been top 14 against Nacional or Federal 3. That was the gulf was absolutely enormous. Um, and yes, France were wonderful, but Italy really, really, I mean, something is going to have to change eventually. And if it is that that glass ceiling is removed, it might be positive. So obviously, a bit like what we're saying about Scotland, they can't really afford to have a few dropouts. So it's, just, it's even worse for Italy. So Italy, clearly with or without Minodzi, Jake Pedri, not the same team. Um, it was almost embarrassing because they did actually not dominate, but um, fight pretty hard in terms of ball possession. They put France under quite a lot of pressure in the first half, but never into enough pressure to actually seriously challenge them. And then France just had to, you know, you switch to third gear, you score a try. And they never really had to push really hard. And in France, basically, we were stupid enough and narrow-minded enough to actually try to say, do they play enough expansive rugby? Uh, Galtier is only basing basically on his, his strategy on turnovers and Antoine Dupont and all that, which I think is not true. But let's just say, if we have to, if we have to address the, the couple of things that you need to take out from that game is that I actually don't know how good Antoine Dupont can be because he's good every single week now. He's just, just a freaking, freaking, freaking nature. And he's doing my head in because <laughs> I am almost turning into a paparazzi. I want him to drop at some point because he's just, mate, he is extra human at the moment. And he didn't ever have a particularly good game. But it just looks too easy. He is the best support line runner in the world. You have a look at every single break there is. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a nine always been there. He's like, um, do you remember this back row from the All Blacks? You know him, Johnny Beatty, Josh Ponfeld. Yeah, of remember course. Him with the, and he was a legend. He played in Leicester for a couple of seasons. And the boys were saying, just look, he's the, what he does really well is that he steals the ball off the ground and he, he hits support line. And apparently he told all the Leicester Tigers boys, he's like, well, when you got John Alomo, you just trail him. So the number, my number one is Antoine Dupont. How bloody hell good can he be? And how consistent is he? It's just absolutely impressive. Secondly, Teddy Thomas, you know how much I hate him in defense and stuff, but he is just he absolutely run low, electric man. in attack. <laughs> man, he's just, he's, he is extraordinary. And he sets up a first try where he just gets off from six Italian players. And I know it's not extraordinary Italian defense, but still, he's got outstandingly um, electric pace. Um, so that's my second take. Jalibert did well. I was pleased that he was there and the boys were there. But the main take from this game, 
the main take and the main difference is that France have gone from the underdogs disappointing for the last 12 years to serious challengers and actually potentially winners of the Six Nations. And they went from that status, which they had to learn to address and to, to understand and to cope with that pressure that comes with it or that expectation that comes with it and without a crowd. So to, to, to make it an even duller, weirder um, uh, sort of experience, whilst they were for two weeks in Nice in isolation where, where the, 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 the press was saying every day, the Six Nations might not happen. So whatever the content of the game, whatever the, the actual guys that were on the pitch, whatever, who did what, I don't care. All I care about is we're finally, finally, hallelujah, finding consistency and sustainability in the performance. And that is absolutely extraordinary. And honestly, I can't stress this enough. It's not about talent, but in their minds, those boys are really, really scoring highly high points in, in my book because that's typically what's been lacking of us. We've constantly been going, doing up and downs and stuff, and they're just reliable now. And that's, that's, that's the main, main thing that I, that, I, that I take from this, and that's what makes, gives me the most pleasure and, and especially the most positive vibes about the future because they will need to be consistent, reliable, sustainable in performance and all that, um, and they will be challenged every weekend. So that, I, was, I was just clearly for that. I completely agree with everything you said. I think it's because they're now clearly organized on both sides of the ball, whereas they haven't been before. France have always had talented players, but they have not been organized properly. You look now, you talk about turnovers playing off turnover, but when France are organized properly in defense, the pressure they put on 10, 12, 13 with a quick press and rush, they snuffed out anything that Italy could offer. They couldn't get to at edge once and do anything. And when they did, they got turned over and then the ball gets popped out to Vincent or Teddy Thomas and you're halfway down the pitch. Look, I think defensively, and Jace touched on it as well, we've spoken about it before in the podcast, the work off the ball, the kick chase, the boring stuff, the absolute meat and drink that every other team does, France now does exceptionally well. And weirdly, one of the guys, like we talked with, like everyone has messaged and talked about, you know, Antoine Dupont's offload and how ridiculous and what flair. And But if you look back and you analyze how it came, it's from his defensive graft. So look, they're organized now off the ball. Defensively, they're great. We've seen pressure on an Italian 10, 12, 13, absolutely crumbled, had no solutions. I think that showed the gulf in class. France have now got a benchmark in terms of their playing ability, but in terms of rugby IQ and now and how to defend properly, they can control teams, they can shackle teams, which previously they couldn't do. France might lose the ball and a team like a, a Wales or an Ireland who can hold ball well would grind them down, create opportunities. And now I think that's going to happen much less often. Again, the man you mentioned, Antoine Dupont, First try, the ball gets threaded through off the mall breakout, off the back of a mall. They've obviously clearly analyzed that Italy don't have anybody in the second line of defense in that position of the field. Really well executed, try. In the past, that would have been a mall breakout, hit a 12, uh, go around a corner, probably lose a ball after four phases. But it's clearly thought out, it's concise. And they've got players that can execute these things and finish. So the first thread through for Fiku, well, well done. I mean, like hats off, but that's good analysis. They've worked hard off the pitch as a coaching team and as players to identify these things and execute. Second try, you talked about it, the track inside line, Teddy Thomas. He does it every single week. Another one, it's almost getting tiresome to see it on replay. But the one that got me was on 30 minutes. So I'm not sure people will just see the kick through, the, the take from Vincent, the pass from Villiers and the offload. And the, like, we'll see that image on repeat now for years because it's one of the pieces of skill that we've seen in the Six Nations tournament, that offload from Antoine Dupont. But what people didn't see, if you go back to the start of that clip, is it's him that forces the turnover. Italy actually have a four on two or a five on two out wide. 
Antoine manages to rush. He blitzes up spot D, spot check somebody, defensive tackle, offensive tackle, dominates somebody, hits them behind the gain line, stops the Italian attack. Italian attack then has to go infield again. They lose control of the ball, turnover, Antoine hacks it down the field. Chaos ensues. So, look, yes, he is now a world-class runner with the ball, but he's also defensively in the middle of the field, which we don't usually see. We have done from Sean Edwards in the past on his sides, but there are other things that he's adding in different levels to his play that this French team are benefiting from. And you mentioned earlier, a bit earlier, Benji, about injuries and looking after people. I was so glad that they got him off 55 minutes. Just oh, yeah. get him in cotton wool, wrap him up, and look forward to see what we can do next week. It's the one thing, Johnny... I, I, the world, maybe I'm biased, but world rugby is absolutely delighted to see a performing French team. World rugby is delighted Everybody to is. see Antoine Dupont back because we just bring this excitement, this joy, this specialness about them. Don't get me wrong. Nobody's going to give us the World Cup in 2023. Everybody's going to try to shoot us down. But to be honest, there's this emotional attachment to French because we do things differently, because we perform a different type of, of rugby, because we come, come up across... And Antoine Dupont, who's a bit, may he rest in peace, Christophe Dominici, the tiny little guy, you know, who will just run over mountains and make you think that nothing's impossible and all that. And on, to- and on top of that, what I really like, because you touched on it, is that Jalibert break gives to Antoine Dupont support and he gives it to Teddy Tova. He can score that try 150 times. Yeah, but they're a team now. And he still shifts the ball. So he's, he, I always portrayed him as somebody who's quite selfish, but he's so selfish because he was so good. You know, so when you're good, you try, you try your best to the absolute point. And there I can actually see that he's shifting into this organizer, this, this, you know, like, exactly like you said, instead of trying for myself to break out from that driving mall, kick it over, obviously it was strategy, but still you have to uh, apply it. Listen, um, every week, I believe a little bit more that finally we're building some sort of reliability, you know, that we can actually, we know where we're going. That is the biggest uh, surprise or su- change from the last 10 years is that we actually finally, we will get beaten by better, but at least we seem seem to be, I'm going to jinx us, but we seem to be able to prevent some ginormous uh, upsets like we used to. And just briefly, before we look ahead to round two, we couldn't legislate for a red card after 12 minutes, but we didn't predict the Wales Island result, did we? No, but it was laboured. Like I, I think if that, if that red card doesn't happen, Ireland win that game. Um, they dominated yeah, largely serious segments of that game with 14 men. And look, I've said it before, I think the Wales look a little bit turgid, unimaginative, um, a little bit lost. And yeah. you think, Benji, like any normally any team at that kind of level, 14 minutes, you take a red card in a back row, you think, right, well, shit's going to hit the fan. Johnny, tell me what you think, because I'm actually surprised that nobody sort of spoke about it. Thomas Francis, right, the tight end for Exeter, gets hit in the head by the shoulder of Peter Maoni. If you press pause, I don't think there's much that you can say about it. It's an unfortunate, accidental, but it's the new red cards that rugby needs to see happening. But two or three minutes before, uh, there's the same clear out from either Byrne, the second row, or Van der Fleer, the, 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 the number seven, I can't remember, on the same player, on Thomas Francis. And it's true that, and you hear Wayne Barnes say, it's accidental, accidental, it's a simple clear out. He can't, yeah. play, he can't do anything about it. So I wonder if that didn't impact Wayne Barnes' decision. So I missed the first one, but then the second one clearly was brought in by the TMO. But that's, yeah. I heard it live in commentary as well. You know, it's just a clear out play on. I was thinking, are you joking? Like seeing it live, I was like, He's gone 100% straight away. But then, thankfully, we have a TMO now that is in place to stop the game and, and make that decision. But no, I completely missed the first one. I didn't even see it. 
Well, let's get your predictions in for round two this weekend now. And we've joined forces with the Guinness Pint Predictor on Match Pint, haven't we? So anyone listening can join in and compete against you guys. It's really simple. You just download the Match Pint app, predict the scores, beat your mates, beat Johnny, beat Benji, and win a whole host of great rugby no prizes. <laughs> and to compete against Johnny and Benji, all you need to do is enter our league with the league code LARUGBY, L-A-R-U-G-B-Y. Johnny is beating you, Benji, at the moment. He picked Scotland to win. Of course he did. He did. He did. I, I was too much of a pussy, basically, to put <laughs> England by one point or two points. I think I, I did. I, I really th- saw the Scots causing a lot of upsets, but I just didn't see them taking it uh, over the line. And fair play, Johnny. You have a little... I think I would have... If there wasn't... Well, obviously, you can't go back. But if it wasn't for that red card... Ireland would have would, t- would have snuck it definitely 100% in Wales. So disappointed not to get a clean sweep, but obviously delighted that Scotland started off with a win at Twickenham. So this week then, England-Italy, scoreline? I reckon not even 50-10, but I reckon 60-10 to England. 60? 60 to 10. No, I reckon they're gonna, I reckon it's going to be a big game. Scotland wins, I will say, a small win for Scotland. Uh, they will be challenged by Wales, who can... I mean, they still have some incredible players. They have George North, they have uh, Tipperick, they have Alwyn Jones, they have, you know, some fantastic, fantastic players. But without the red card from Ireland, I don't think they would have uh, contained the, the comeback from Ireland. So I, I see Scotland as favourites and I see them winning that game 25 to 12. And for the last game, Ireland-France, to be honest, Ireland is not an opponent that fits France well at all. Because if they want to, they can hide the ball for 79 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, they can play very tactical, a lot of strategy, a lot of kicking game. We want ball in play. We want um, counter-attacks. We want loose balls. We want loose possession, basically, for France to be able to fully um, uh, showcase their talent. But I see one win- I see France sorry, winning in Ireland uh, by 25 to 12. Right, Benji. Um, so I reckon Wales right now, for me, are the exact opposite of France in that We've talked how France have got the coaching staff now um, and they're packed full of quality with their players. I think that Wales still have players that are quality. Look, British Lions, people have worked with Gatlin in the past. You've got North, Tipperick, Alan Wynne-Jones. Wynne-Jones, again, was exceptional at the weekend. But I just think as a team and how they function, they're not what they were. They're, even stuff like their, their nuts and bolts, like their line-out was absolutely shocking, like taken to pieces against Ireland. I just don't see them having the platform and I don't, see them being as dangerous as they once were with ball in hand. Like Scotland coming off that win at Twickenham will be, will be confident, will be pumped up. And I, I don't want to say it, but I actually do see it for the first time in a long time being relatively comfortable for Scotland. Um, I'm not sure if that's the final kiss of death. Um, but I'm going to go Scotland 25, Wales 16. Um, England, Italy, look, I completely agree. Redemption, um, Italy, I worry for them. That being said, there's still boys to come back in. I see that... Um, Marco Vunapola has been drafted back in. Sinclair has been drafted back in, but these guys haven't had much. Like I know Marco's had pretty much no game time, so he will not be up to speed either. So I, I don't see it being 60 points. I could see it being something like 45 because they're still not going to be firing. And I'm not sure if they're going to tweak what they're doing with their game. But even when they beat Italy away last year, with the strategy that they employ, it's never going to be that high scoring. But look, there's just such a margin difference in quality. I'm going to go 45-12 for England. And that last game, I actually disagree with you. I, I Again, I don't see Ireland the same way. I don't think they are the proposition that they were under Joe Schmidt. I don't think they control ball. I don't think there's much 
as potent as they were. I think they've got some incredible guys. Like I thought Tag Byrne was phenomenal in the second row. Um, he's an absolute menace, but I, genu- I genuinely believe that France have got enough, especially with there not being a crowd over there um, to do a job. Um, I think that France are going to take this one 13 points to 24. So you, you do agree with me then, huh? Because I said that first <laughs> Similar score. Yeah, I said 25-12, didn't I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've just stolen your scoreline. Yeah, we agree 100%. And just a very quick line on the top 14 before we go. Not too many surprises in terms of results, but did anything catch your eye? I'm assuming Claremont caught your eye, Benji, but Montpellier finally winning a game after nine straight defeats. Ah, hang on, hang on, hang on. Before <laughs> you speak about Montpellier, just listen, tough to see Claremont performing really well, a tough game, a lot of intensity, and, and Clermont beat Lyon in a, in a, in a comfortably. And just just a little side note, it was the last game of Sitali uh, Kitimani. So the massive oh, lock, Tongan, Tongan origin, uh, 25 caps for the Wallabies or something, who went to Montpellier, I think played with Johnny, yep. and then signed, signed in France and signed in, uh, sorry, signed in Clermont and, and played a couple of seasons. I was lucky enough to play with him. Uh, an absolute unit of a, of a fella, but the, the kindest, gentlest giant I've ever met. Um, really hardworking, really kind. Um, well, that d- doesn't drink, doesn't go out, you know, that type of guy, but who will never make you feel awkward about it. Just kind and all constantly taking care of others. Uh, really good family. And for personal reasons, to take care of his family, he has to go back home. And so the club uh, um, uh, announced that they released him and they, they signed Thomas Lavanini from Leicester Tigers. So it's not too bad in terms of replacement. But an absolute legend, uh, big licky, like everybody called him, who just gave his body and his soul for this club. And I just wanted to give him a big shout out because he, he was a legend. He was always the type of guy, he never really, he would never pour you out to him. But but a couple of times he would just grab me and he'll be like, I'm with you. And when a guy as big as him says that to you, and he means it huh? because he would never say anything particularly. You're like, bloody hell, I, I, I can, there's nothing's impossible for me. So uh, a huge farewell, um, and the boys were just, they were gutted that the, the fans were not there you know, to wish him well. He was there in 2017. He came back from an eight-week or eight- or nine-week knee injury in about three and a half weeks to play a top-14 final. Didn't say anything, kept on going, but knocked himself out after, after 30 minutes. Um, but but he's, he's always committed to the team and stuff, and just a, an absolutely fantastic big fella who, who did well, and we wish him all the absolute very best. Absolutely, there with you too. And he was, like you said, an absolute gentle giant. Um, big family guy as well, had his kids over here as well. Lovely bloke, um, good memories from Montpellier. But what I loved from the Clermont boys, and it's not something that you see often in rugby now, but the fact that they, he went off the pitch in his last game on everyone's shoulders. And I really enjoyed that. It's not you know an end of a season winning a, a trophy or a top 14 or a Brennus, but... I think it just showed how highly regarded he was, like firstly by us in Montpellier in his first contract, but how loved he was by the Claremont boys. So no, he um, wish him all the best and his family because um, they're absolutely lovely. And speaking of his former club, Montpellier, another important win for them. I say another important win. There haven't been too many. Uh, might be something to do with yeah, the Andre. important win. Come on, yeah. you can you be the, happier with that. Just let the, a smile go. Well, the thing is as well, mate, it was with a bonus point. Like to the performances they've had to then get that one with the bonus point. You saw the relief on Benoit Payog's face at the end, like looking up yeah. at the sky, just desperate. So happy. Relief. Still not that much light between them and Bayonne. So that's Montpellier played 16 games up to 27 points. Bayonne second bottom in that red zone on 14 games and 22 points, but a huge win for Montpellier because it's been a few weeks now they've been seriously, seriously uh, in the dark. Thanks guys. And we will await round two of the Six Nations 
with interest this weekend. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Benji. And thanks to all of you guys for listening as well. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave us a nice review, and we will be back with another episode next week. Au revoir, guys. Cheers, guys. Au revoir. Bye. Bye.